You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Wednesday, March 2nd, 2022. I'm Ash Bennington, joined today by 42 Macros, Darius Dale. But first, here's what's happening right now. Seven days in, the invasion of Ukraine continues to broaden. Russian troops closer to the capital of Kyiv. Overnight, Russian troops also surrounded Mariupol, the city in eastern Ukraine. We're here to talk about markets and macro today, obviously, uh, but this is a major humanitarian crisis there are conflicting reports about civilian death tolls. Ukrainian officials now reporting 2,000 civilian deaths. The United Nations High Commission for Human Rights confirming over 130 deaths uh, from civilians. There are now also more than 800,000 civilian refugees, also according to the United Nations. Uh, as I said, we're here to talk about markets. Obviously, it's a difficult day to do that. Uh, but let's go through what's happening in U.S. equity markets today. Uh, by and large, across the board, there's a lot of green on the screen today. S&P 500 up 1.86% on the day, uh, closing out, it uh, looks like still bouncing around a little bit, at 4,386. NASDAQ up 1.6% on the day, closing out the day at 13,752. Dow Jones Industrial Average also up about 1.8% on the day, closing out the action at 33,000. 904. Let's bring in Darius Dale into the conversation. Darius, as always, it's a pleasure to have you here on Real Vision Daily Briefing. It is a pleasure to be here, my friend. How you doing, Ash? I'm doing well. Obviously, a lot going on here today, uh, both in and out of markets. Uh, comments from Chair Powell uh, and other actions happening right now. How are you thinking about this? What's at the top of your screen? And what's your broad frame looking at these markets? Yeah, absolutely. So this is, uh, I think you, you, in order to understand what happened today, you have to go back to yesterday. So obviously a massive move down in interest rates, massive move down in, in, in monetary policy, tightening expectations. If you look at overnight index swap forwards curves, big, big repricings lower. Um, and so that tells you one thing, when, when we ever have interest rates and particularly interest rates on the short end of the curve that are positively correlated with market, uh, either to the upside or to the downside, that tells you that the market itself has a, a positive growth bias. And that's exactly what we saw today in, in terms of unwinding that. And ironically, a lot of that unwind came on the heels of Powell being sort of slightly dovish relative to what I guess would have been the hawkish right tail of policy from a near-term perspective. So yeah, you get the 50 basis point hike uh, in a couple of weeks. Um, as we said, it will sort of you know, um, you know, tighten policy at a, at, a, at a measured pace. You know, They're going to be very deliberate about it and, and, and obviously data dependent. And so to some degree, you could say that they're really right tail from a longer term perspective as well. So that's margin, both bond yield, policy rate expectations, stocks, credit, all those types of um, exposures in the market to reflate in the near term. Because again, this is something we've talked about in the program and I'll shut up. The growth dynamics in the US and global economy are still fine right now. You know, there's really no risk uh, from that perspective. And you really do need to see a, a more material deceleration or de de degradation in the growth outlook in order for asset markets, risk assets in particular, to sustain declines for treasury bond prices, to sustain rallies, things of that nature. 
Hey, Darius, let's break that down, simplify it a little bit. Uh, so this, this expectation, it, uh, Chair Powell saying uh, that he would support a 25 basis point hike. Uh, obviously, some of the speculation had been a 50 basis point hike uh, going into today's commentary before uh, the House of Representatives. This, uh, as you said, a, a relatively dovish tilt to expectations. Give us a little bit of a sense. Is this almost kind of a Goldilocks scenario, Darius? Is is the chair uh, saying effectively that uh, growth is high enough to sustain a 25 basis point uh, hike, but that some of the uh, potential headwinds, I guess, from uh, the conflict in Ukraine and other global headwinds uh, are are impinging on markets in a way that 50 basis points might be too much? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I wouldn't necessarily call it a, a dovish surprise because they're not... Right surprising to the downside with respect to where the central tendency of where market pricing is you know they're basically confirming where markets right have, have moved in terms of pricing in uh, the 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 rates curve you know the, the issue in terms of what powell said today about the growth outlook he's just confirming what the data are already confirming obviously we got the adp numbers this morning uh continue to show very positive uh a high degree of positive momentum uh in the labor market we got the ism data uh yesterday continue to show a high degree of positive momentum uh, in the industrial economy as well. And so, you know, in terms of the, the, you know, the most recent updates, again, we're continuing to be in this part of the process where, you know, the growth dynamics are generally picking up steam into the spring. And that's as a function of the, uh, the economy recovering from the impact of Omicron. Omicron had a, you know, pretty material impact. I mean, we saw at the lows in terms of real consumer spending in December, it was contracting at a 12% annualized pace. You know, we've since rebounded from that. Um, but the reality is, you know, we do have a little bit more hate bell to the upside on growth before we really start to get into a place where growth should decelerate more meaningfully in the middle to the, the back half of the year. Yeah. Hey, Darius, let me double click on expand on something that you said at the beginning uh, of that, this idea of what's happening with the ADP employment numbers. I know that this is something that you live with. You think about this stuff all the time. For people who aren't familiar with the ADP uh, numbers, tell us what they are, what they represent, uh, and how this 400,000 print uh, coming out today impacts your view of what's happening in the labor markets. Yeah, so it, it doesn't really change the story, but it, it just confirms the already, you know, cemented story that we were well aware of as investors, which is the labor market is on fire. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's really, you know, obviously it's not a particularly scientific characterization, but that's the, I mean, you look at the revisions we saw towards the end of Q4, and obviously the strength we saw in January and the continued strength we're seeing in the ADP numbers, and those track uh, actual realized private payroll. So it's not quite the same as the survey we're going to get on Friday in terms of the broader labor market update. But generally, those time series are pretty co-integrated um, and, and, and on short and, and on, you know, medium term durations, they tend to be highly correlated as well. So, yeah, you know, we, we, we're, you know, it's very likely we continue to see a robust labor market. And again, let's not forget that employment is a lagging indicator. Um, you know, if you look at the yield curve, you know, you look at the our, in terms of our projections for growth on an out-year basis and, you know, over the multi-quarter basis, you know, it's likely that growth, you know, really stops, you know, starts to peter out, you know, around the springtime and starts to decelerate again in terms of those impacts. And if that's you are going to start to see the labor market, you know, kind of decelerate and, 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 and start to deteriorate on a lag to that, you know, a multi-quarter lag to that process. But again, I think we're, we're pretty early in that. Hey, Darius, one other thing I wanted to talk about here uh, is energy markets. So right now, WTI trading at about 111 bucks a barrel. Uh, it is up considerably on the day, uh, up about 7%. This is WTI crude. If we flip over to Brent, which is the global price of oil, WTI, of course, is the price at Cushing, Oklahoma. WTI, uh, the thing we use here in the United States, but abroad, it's Brent. Uh, Brent up about 8.7, 8 call it, on the day, 114 bucks a barrel on ice Brent crude. 
May 22 futures. Obviously, this is some significant upward price momentum on energy, on the oil markets. What are you seeing there? Uh, and also, how do you frame it more broadly? Yeah, absolutely. So let's start by saying this is a, a real true energy price shock that will have ramifications for the U.S. and global economies. Not necessarily today or on a short-term time horizon, because again, we still have these sort of positive growth impulses associated with, quote-unquote, ending the pandemic. Once we lose that positive growth impulse and we're left with a much slower pace of, of, economic, of true organic growth, then this energy price shock is likely to really start to weigh on, on consumer spending. I mean, we're already seeing consumer uh, real disposable personal income per capita is contracting at a, a down near 4% annualized pace um, in the month of January. And so clearly, you know, the inflation that we're seeing, again, all-time high in the sequential momentum and median CPI, 30-year high in the sequential momentum in sticky CPI, all these inflation dynamics, you know, throw out the year-over-year -year rate of change. The, the inflation momentum is something that is very much likely to come home to roost and put the consumer at a really negative path on a medium perspective. But again, the, the short term is quite positive. Going back to oil, um, Brian, if you mind putting that crowding chart up, this is something we wrote about uh, in our morning note today, which is, you know, when you look at sort of, you know, the location of where, where the USO dot is on that chart, the scatter plot on the x-axis are showing uh, two month, uh, the one year Z-score, two month, 25 delta skew on the y-axis are showing our, our proprietary calculation of, of the volatility risk premia. And, you know, when you're in the upper left quadrant of that chart, what tends to happen is that, you know, the market is really, you know, sort of, you know, a bullishly positioned market is really starting to get extremely nervous about downside risk, protecting immediate term downside risk. And whenever dealers are hedged and you start to see that, um, or sorry, whenever dealers are short gamma and you start to see that sort of build up in volatility risk premium, as we sort of kind of have in this current juncture, you have to be quite concerned about a pretty significant pullback in the near term. Now that won't change the fact that oil will still be ragingly bullish from a price perspective. And I do believe that dip is should be bought. But I think if you're long crude oil here, particularly the commodity, you do well to be booking some of these gains because it's very unlikely that we continue to see price appreciation at this pace without some profit taking. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hey, Darius, let's zoom the camera out a little bit. Talk a little bit about your process and how it impacts, uh, obviously, when geopolitical events like we're seeing today uh, impinge on markets. Tell us a little bit about how you attempt uh, to work in the daily news cycle. Uh, I know that you're obviously very quantitative, as people can see from these charts. You have a methodology that you stick to. How do you it process it? How do you bring in some of the news cycle events, particularly when you see these things that are breaking very quickly? Obviously, we mentioned a significant humanitarian crisis, but also a macroeconomic story uh, as well. How do you process it? How do you integrate it? Uh, or do you try and, and not pull it in until you actually see it in the data? Yeah, so the reality is, is, is you always have to relate any sort of catalyst, be it geopolitical, be it, you know, climate, be it, you know, hurricanes, all this stuff. You have to understand where you are in the growth, inflation, and policy cycles. Those are the three most important variables that you need to solve for in under right. and, and, and actually, you know, pro profitably predict dispersion in and across asset markets. And so right now we're sort of, we've been trending lower in growth, but we're having this sort of, you know, counter cyclical bounce as a function of, uh, you know, recovering from the impact of Omicron. But eventually that counter cyclical bounce 
we'll resume back, we'll return back to that trend of deceleration in, in, a, in a matter of a few months at, at the most. Um, we're also having a, a sort of cyclical, we're at or near a cyclical high in inflation. Um, you know, it's a very, according to our models, uh, Brian, you can put that core PC chart up, you know, at least according to our models, you know, core PC should peak out uh, sometime around the February to March timeframe and ultimately begin its, um, its deceleration lower. And then lastly, we, you know, it's pretty well telegraphed with respect to what we're going to have from a monetary policy perspective and monetary and fiscal policy. I think fiscal policy is equally important in 2022 as well. Um, clearly, we're going to have, you know, some series of interest rate hikes, at least at the, over the next couple of quarters until financial markets tell the Fed that they have to, to, to back off, which we do believe will happen uh, at some point this year. Uh, but the fiscal policy dynamic continues to be quite unsupportive as well. We have a pretty near, we have a near record fiscal contraction you know, coming for us in terms of, uh, you know, in, 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 in one fiscal year window. So when I add up all those factors together, you know, the geopol geopolitical situation, you know, it could be a, a, a bunch of puppies, you know, sort of laughing at, at, at blowing bubbles. You know, that, you know, it doesn't matter if it's a war in Ukraine, obviously it's a horrific, um, you know, incident, but it, geopolitics takes a backseat to these growth, inflation, and policy fundamentals. It's about how do the geopolitics impact growth? How do they impact inflation? How do they impact uh, policy? Well, the markets are telling you that inflation is going to go higher as a function of geopolitical concerns. The market is also telling you in terms of the repricing we've seen in growth or in, in, in the bond yields and in, in, in rates markets, that growth is probably going to be lower over the medium term as well. And as a function of that, th those two dynamics, it's likely to be that policy is, is less aggressive in normalizing. And that today is celebrated by markets, but ultimately those, those dynamics are likely to be not good. Yeah, I always admire, uh, Darius, you are a, definitely a methodological systemic thinker, and yet you have a system that's flexible enough to account for new data coming into it, which, of course, is very important. You know, one of the things that we talked about uh, at the top of the show uh, was energy markets talking about oil. I wanted to also switch here uh, a bit to natural gas uh, and to go to a clip that we have uh, from today, actually, on Real Vision Platform. This is for the Essential Plus and Pro Tiers. Uh, it's an interview between Tony Greer and Doomberg talking about arbitrage opportunities uh, for U.S. manufacturers with natural gas inputs. Let's take a look at that clip. One of the real fascinating things is if you're a, a U.S.-based manufacturer that uses natural gas and can price your products uh, globally and export globally, you are a de facto exporter of natural gas and you can participate in the huge arbitrage that has opened up between U.S. natural gas and natural gas in Europe and in Asia. So just to benchmark our listeners, you know, as we sit here today on Monday, U.S. natural gas is, you know, 450 and Dutch TTF is trading at um, $34 per million BTU. That ratio is what? It's seven and a half, eight times the price. So if you're a, a company that sits, you know, on the end of a U.S. natural gas pipeline and you can sell your products at global prices, you're literally just printing cash. And so that's one category. Examples of companies in that space would be obviously fertilizer producers, um, CF Industries, just reported an unbelievable quarter, you know, 1.5 billion roughly in free cash flow, I think. And they, they look set to just ring the register because if you look at the forward curve of Dutch TTF, it's priced out basically at $30 per million BTU all the way to December. And the US natural gas curve is is pretty flat. And so the the term structure of the of natural gas futures is a huge arbitrage that looks set to stay. So a little bit of context on natural gas. By the way, for those of you who may have noticed, there was a cartoon chicken on your screen. That's Doomberg T. You can follow him on Twitter. Don't worry, your coworkers have not slipped mushrooms into your coffee. Uh, but the point here, uh, Darius, actually is a serious one. 
What's your thought about the significant rise uh, in natural gas prices and how does that uh, integrate with your methodology? Yeah, it's, it's, it's another supply shock. I mean, look, we've been dealing with supply shock after supply shock throughout this pandemic. And just at the time where we're seeing this sort of, you know, kind of um, supply chain disruptions, you know, ameliorate and kind of unthaw. Um, this is something we've been talking about on the program. We're actually getting a secondary shock in, in energy prices. And obviously it's filtering and feeding through to other commodities. Obviously net gas would be in the energy, but fertilizers, agriculture, you know, precious metals, base metals, you know, there's a real inflationary impulse that is building here. And, and, and I'll take a step back and I certainly am one of these economists as well. And pretty much every economist on Wall Street, including the Fed, has the same forecast that inflation is likely to trend lower over the medium term. And that, and you know, I don't disagree with that in your view rate of change terms. The problem with that is that we might not see the dissipation in the momentum of inflation that we need to see. You know, I mentioned this earlier, but median CPI at 7.1% on a month over month annualized basis, that's the fastest uh, momentum we've seen. You know, and this is the month of January. This is the most recent data point. We've seen, we've never seen uh, median CPI, the broad basedness of inflation pressure um, ever. You know, this is, that's the data going back to 1983. And with the uh, sticky CPI as well, that's a 7.5% on a month over month annualized pace um, in, in the month of January as well. So not only are we still seeing elevated rates of inflation from a momentum perspective, we're actually building that momentum, you know, to 30 year and 40 into uh into 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 the month of february we'll, we'll get that data uh next week so to me it's 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 a real dangerous setup here because i think a lot of investors are very much sort of position not positioned for yet because you certainly don't see that that long uh duration trade yet uh fully baked in the cake in terms of asset markets but a lot of investors are you know having at least particularly on the long side of have a sanguine view on the direction of travel and the magnitude of change and inflation and the reality is they could very much be right on the direction of travel, but if the magnitude of change, you know, the magnitude of the deceleration is not consistent with the Fed's forecast, then everything that Jay Powell just told you about being, you know, gradual and measured and don't worry about it, we're not going to tighten the economy into a recession. Well, guess what? He's going to be wrong on that. And that to me is, a, is, a, is an ultimate medium term risk because by the time you get into the spring and the summer months where everyone expects inflation to be much lower it might not, it might be lower. It should be lower. It most likely will be lower in terms of our models and everyone else's models. But what if it's not that much lower? And that to me is a real big issue for the consumer from an income perspective. It's also a real big issue for asset markets in terms of investors really have not, having not sold as a function of, 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 of the declining, uh, the decline in the economy. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Chair Powell retired the phrase transitory, but it certainly seems that the transitory framework is something that's still very much uh, on his screen right now, based on what he said today uh, before the House committee. Yeah, no, you keep saying they're data dependent, but for whatever reason, with inflation statistics, they're not. Again, everything I just said about inflation should be very alarming. It is very alarming. I mean, President Biden was very alarmed by it last night. But the reality is the Fed, you know, just recently finished buying bonds and they're still suck at zero from a policy perspective. You know, so he's going to do what he, you know, this he's, he's reluctant to give up the sort of growth, the focus on growth, right? Like the Fed, Right. My entire career, you know, dating back to 2000, you know, my entire career, the Fed has been overtly focused on growth and more importantly, I would argue, focused on financial conditions. Yes. Is this time where we thought that the Fed has to, you know, be based on political dynamics, just based on the data itself, you know, we're again, we're, you know, in his three to four times the Fed's uh, target in the most recent month. And so we all expect the Fed or not we all, but a lot of us in, in financial markets, Fed to 
fighting inflation this year, but at the margin, and I think part as a function of, you know, volatility being elevated and, you know, starting to see a little bit of creep higher in credit spreads. We're about 370 over in high yield OAS. You know, I think the Fed is starting to look around and seeing the geopolitical concerns and kind of looking for not, I wouldn't call it an out, but certainly looking for something that could take off the hawkish right tail. And that's positive at the margin for now. But the problem is, is once you get into the spring ahead of a faster deceleration in growth, they could add yeah. that hawkish right tail back into the market. Yeah, and that's exactly the challenge and exactly the bind the Fed finds itself in uh, is balancing the two wings of the dual mandate and making the economy uh, remain airborne, shall we say. Uh, listen, Darius, lots of questions coming across my screen for you right now. Uh, first one comes to us from uh, Petro F Record. I'm not sure if I got that name right. I probably goofed it. I think it's just a handle. It's three words together. Anyway, you know who you are. Uh, the question is, historically, what effect do rate hikes by the Fed have on the longer end of the curve? In other words, the piece of the curve, for people who don't uh, know and who aren't following this as closely as Darius, is the part of the curve that the Fed doesn't directly control the longer end of the curve out beyond 10 years, say. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm pulling this up right now. Um, so when the Fed is hiking interest rates, and you know, so when the Fed is hiking interest rates, I'm looking at the 10-year treasury, or sorry, 30-year treasury long bond futures. So when the Fed is hiking interest rates and growth's accelerating, you know, it has a sort of, you know, median uh, sort of uh, range decline of, of minus 6% to minus 16% on an annualized basis. So you can lose 6% or six, somewhere between 6 to 16% of your money on an annualized basis when the Fed is hiking interest rates um, in, in, sorry, in long bonds when the Fed is hiking interest rates. You actually make money in the long bond when the Fed is hiking interest rates if growth is slowing. And so that median uh, range is, is somewhere between 8 uh, plus 8 to 11% on an annualized basis when growth is slowing and the Fed is hiking interest rates into that slowdown. So that's exactly uh, at the onset of the tightening cycle, the Fed is hiking interest rates into a, you know, sort of short term, you know, but kind of trend bounce in economic activity. You know, once we get out a few months, they're very much going to be hiking interest rates into an economic slowdown and one that could potentially be uh, much faster than, any, in, than what consensus expects. In fact, we, we already do believe faster than what consensus expects. One stat on that, and I know we got questions here, the most important to me, one of the most important stats that I don't see anyone talking about, there's several, but this is one of the most important, which is Bloomberg consensus still has U.S. growth coming in at 3.7% year over year, or 3.7% in 2022. You know, that figure is 170 basis points higher than our trend growth rate. And so mm. riddle me this, like what's happening in the economy with declining real incomes, monetary tightening, a near record fiscal contraction that is catalyzing a you know, 170 basis point, you know, spread relative to our trend growth rate. I, I, I can't see it. I don't know where it is. I certainly look at the airline stocks. I look at leisure and hospitality stocks, and they're not telling me that we're about to have the service sector boom coming out of the pandemic. So to me, that's the next shoe to drop. And I do believe that shoe will drop sometime in mid to late Q2. Hey, Darius, I'm going to ask you to answer that hypothetical or at least try to speculate on it. But first, uh, for people who don't know what trend growth rate is, uh, give us the sense of what trend growth rate is and why it's important when understanding uh, the actual rate of growth relative to that trend. So there's a bunch of ways to calculate it, but I think the most simplest way to calculate it is just looking at a simple linear regression of the growth rate you know, throughout the time period and projecting that linear regression forward. Obviously, you can look at the potential growth rate, which is you know, the sum of all the factors of production. Uh, in the economy, those two things tend to coincide. They tend to be highly correlated. Um, and so the easiest way, obviously, it's, it's a lot of the data that you would use to calculate a factor of production model um, is usually released on severe lag. So a lot of economists kind of cheat by using that linear reduction method. And, and that linear reduction method says we should be growing somewhere around 2%. 
in the absence of fiscal monetary stimulus, in the absence of some sort of, you know, major economic shock to the upside, such as opening from a pandemic and everybody going to Disneyland and eating out six times a week. Right. And in the data, I just see it in the charts. Yeah, if I remember my college economics correctly, it's C plus G plus I plus NX. Uh, and the most significant component of that is the C. This is the domestic consumption, uh, which is, I think, about 65 to 70% of U.S. GDP. Yeah, it absolutely is. And so 65 to 70% U.S. GDP and the, 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 the only real fat, the only thing out there that's supporting that C right now is, is obviously income. It's because we don't have fiscal monetary stimulus anymore. We don't have, you know, just runaway sort of asset price appreciation anymore, though home prices are still elevated but declining on a, or slowing on a sequential basis. Um, you know, so it's what, what sustains the C. And again, I mentioned at the outset, we are contracting at a near 4% annualized pace in real disposable personal income per capita. That's a problem. We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Here's a question that comes to us uh, from uh, Mark from the Real Vision site. And the question is, has Darius adjusted his expectation of the number of rate hikes this year? I think the medium was projected at seven. Uh, what's your thought on that number, Darius? No, I mean, so start by saying I don't have any expectation for the number of rate hikes because the reality is it's path dependent. Um, so if the Fed, if until the market, and so this is, this is the key sort of setup for 2022, and we talked about this in the program, so I'll summarize. There's three, if you think about a stool, a three-legged stool, in terms of what the Fed can actually receive feedback from, there's the labor market, there's the in inflation statistics, and those are you know those two. That's the two Fed's two mandates, and their kind of third mandate, if you will, is financial conditions. Right, is a lagging indicator. It's not going to tell the Fed to do anything differently with respect to tightening monetary policy over the medium to longer term. And what I mean by medium to long term, six to twelve months. Inflation is not going to tell the Fed to do anything. If you look at our forecast for core PCE going to be persistently elevated relative to their forecast and relative to the consensus forecast throughout the year, even though the direction of travel will be, be negative. And so that leaves the only leg of the stool that will give the Fed feedback to stop doing what it's doing from a monetary tightening standpoint are financial conditions. The only leg of the stool left is financial conditions. And mm. the financial conditions tighten sooner rather than later, then we're going to get way fewer hikes. If there's financial conditions uh, later rather than sooner, we're going to get more hikes. And so the answer to your question, to that, to, to the subscriber or the viewer's question, it's really just, it's a function of where financial conditions are at every interval. And this is why we have to do our jobs and not speculate. Yeah, very well said. Um, Darius, here's a question for you that comes to us uh, from Jonathan Johnson. This one comes uh, to us from YouTube. Uh, and the question is, how much value does VIX provide in making options more expensive? You get a Black-Scholes question, Darius. <laughs> no, so I'm, I'm definitely not smart enough for that. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, that's the Black Shoals will be definitely beyond that. But obviously the VIX will tell you, and really it's not the level of the VIX, it's the level of the VIX relative to realized volatility. And so typically there's a few things that call out. So one, real implied volatility is almost always, uh, generally speaking, is, is usually um, more more expensive than realized volatility. There's a volatility risk premium that exists in financial markets uh, that a lot of investors have, you know, created, you know, clever strategies to harvest. Um, and so VIX at 31, you know, you, you know, the simple math is divided by 16. 
my former football brain brain doesn't allow me to do mental math anymore. I think that's somewhere around, you know, two, a little bit over two or two percent, you know, somewhere around two percent. That's what the market is pricing in in terms of daily fluctuations. That's a lot. I mean, to sustain that kind of volatility, that intraday, day-to-day volatility, you need a lot of bad news. And right now, we're just not going to get a lot of bad news, at least from the perspective of growth. You might get some more bad news from the perspective of inflation, but uh, on the margin, that news from the perspective of inflation is being mitigated because Powell is effectively saying we're chopping off the right tail of policy tightening. And so really, we're just you know, bare. You have to wait until the growth uh, dynamic really starts to inflect in a negative and material way. And again, at least according to our models, it's unlikely to inflect in a real negative way until you get to mid to late Q2. Yeah. And, and actually bring up that, uh, Brian, if you, if you don't mind, uh, bring up that dispersion chart. A dispersion chart's pretty, uh, pretty instructive as well. So what we're tracking in this analysis is the month over month sharp ratio of, of 50 plus US equity sectors and style factors. And we're trying to find, trying to identify changes in the composition between the upper quintile and the lower quintile. The, if the upper quintile is dominated by a bunch of, you know, high beta, high debt, pro-cyclical exposures, that tells you the market is rotating in a pro-cyclical, in a positive, in a, in a, in a growth-positive manner. However, if the upper quintile is dominated by a bunch of defensives um, and vice versa, it tells you the market is getting getting risk off and, and positioning for, for, for a drawdown. Um, you know, this, this, that, this analysis is designed to track sort of, quote-unquote, pod shop flows, the Citadels, the Millenniums. These are the major Wall Street hedge funds that kind of control most of the equity market turnover on any given day. And right. uh, you know, unpacking this analysis, if you look at the composition of the analysis, about 80% of the composition of the upper quintile are things that are highly shorted, consensus shorts. And so that tells you, and then you look at the things at the bottom quintile and the lower quintile, it tells you it's, it's all a bunch of consensus long ideas. And so what this analysis is telling me is that, you know, big funds like Citadel, Millennium, Point72, Ballyasney, all these major Wall Street hedge funds have actually degrossed in recent weeks, in recent months. And so that tells you if we don't have a negative growth scare in between now and let's call it the spring, they're going to have to regross higher. And that could actually perpetuate us um, into the spring. But again, I, I think that's just given the medium term risk to the market. I, 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 I just, you know, unless you have the ability to trade well and, and get yourself out of that, I that's mm. still too particularly comfortable chasing, but I do believe it's an upside risk. Yeah, very well said. Darius, it's always a pleasure to have you here. We've got about 60 seconds left. Final thoughts, key takeaways for our viewers today. Yeah, no, don't, don't be cavalier. Again, you have to understand. So let me, let me take a step back. You have to understand where you are in the cycle. If mm. Accelerating the, the geopolitical concerns, you know, go back to 2016 with Brexit and the Trump election or Rocket Man or North Korea in 2010. There's all these geopolitical concerns. When growth's accelerating, the market shrugs it off. When growth's decelerating and there's a... Mm. You don't know where the terminal downside is in the growth rate of the economy, uh, both domestically and abroad. That's when geopolitical concerns really start to matter and feed it back into volatility and feed back into risk managers cutting risk and forcing their their hedge funds and their mutual funds to, to take down leverage. Um, that that is a that this is you you have to understand that we are in the latter part of that play uh, that playbook, and so you could get a bounce into the spring or you could get you know some um you know some positive you know sort of uh, market activity. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's the beginning of a new dawn. If anything, you'd be using that to sell strength and sell into. So I uh, just want to make sure everyone's aware of kind of where we are in this broader kind of macro, um, macro regime uh, framework. Yeah. Darius Dale, always a pleasure to have you with us on Real Vision Daily Briefing. Uh, and thank you again for watching the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Since you're a Real Vision viewer, you might also want to know Real Vision is hiring. Check out realvision.com forward slash careers. That's Real Vision 
realvision.com forward slash careers to find out about all the options that are available at Real Vision right now. I'll be back tomorrow on Real Vision Daily Briefing hosting Michael Guyad. Thanks for joining us, everyone. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.